to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Okay, so the last time we were in chapter 1, and Peter taught us about our faith, and then really a lesson in holiness and reverence and dependence on God and interdependence amongst each other. And today we're going to see another therefore, okay? Another connecting verse to tell us, based on what you've heard before, that foundation, then therefore this is what should happen now. Uh, He taught us, he's going to teach us more about how to love more about dependence and interdependence from really another angle. So verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So therefore, predicated upon what was said in the first chapter, holiness, reverence, and love on the positive side. So now he's giving us a negative. He gave us a positive, put on these things. So now he's giving us a negative, remove these things. No room for the following. Number one, malice, badness, malignity, trouble, a no-tolerance policy of wicked behavior in the body of Christ. Two, guile, to be tricky or crafty or deceitful, mind games, It's better to be upfront than to be sneaky. I've actually often gotten myself in trouble for being too upfront, but I certainly would take that any day over playing games with people. We should just be upfront. Hypocrisy, right? This is saying one thing and doing another. Now, for those of you who have gone to somebody and tried to tell them about the love of God and talked about church or the Bible, um, what are one of the things, and you can please call it out, one of the biggest roadblocks for them to come to church or read the Bible or be around Christians, they say what? Christians are? There you go. (laughs) Hypocrisy. I swear there's a school out there that people are taught, if an evangelist comes to you, say this. That'll really twist them up a little bit. Uh, But you know what? Maybe we all own some of that. At times, we do play the hypocrite. As a matter of fact, Paul was playing the hypocrite between the Jews and the Gentiles. I'm sorry, Peter was. And Paul withstood him to his face and rebuked him for being hypocritical. So that's another one. Four, envy or jealousy. It means you're bothered by what someone has more than you. Or maybe you get something and then someone you know gets something and it bothers you that they have the same thing that you have. Right? Jealousy. could be jealous of other people's uh, talents and things of that nature. Uh, some of you will go on to be better teachers and speakers than me. Some of you will, uh, some of you make more money than me. And, and my attitude is, God bless you. Just take all those talents and those gifts and use them to further God's kingdom. John the Baptist had the right idea. He said regarding Jesus, remember, John the Baptist had disciples. And some of his disciples were leaving him and actually went to follow Jesus. And his response was, I must decrease while he must increase. Now, a different attitude than the religious leaders because their attitude was they were really bothered and they were jealous that Jesus, that people were following Jesus and they were leaving these guys. So you see a different attitude uh, regarding humility versus jealousy. And five, evil speaking, defamation, backbiting, slander, often as a result of envy or jealousy. You've heard the expression, the pen is mightier than the sword. 
used to be emails. You know, you didn't like somebody, you sent them a nasty email. Now the other uh, electronic venues are Facebook, MySpace. It's the newest venue for people to say awful things about somebody else. Actually, I, I look at the online news, the cable news, and every, every news story practically, there's a comment section. No matter what story it is, somebody's got a comment on that section. When you hit the comment section, there's always some real vile, nasty, uh, vilifying remarks that, that a person says before maybe they even know the whole situation. So you see that uh, going on in our society, right? And even if you're not really directly involved in it, but you try to involve yourself in these things, you know, that indicates a boring life. And I have to say, if your life is that boring, we have plenty of stuff to do around this church. Just come to me and say, Pastor Joe, my life is so boring, I have to be in other people's businesses, and I will give you something to do here. Trust me, okay? <laughs> By spir spiritual contrast, verse 2, as newborn babes, so put off these things, but as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Right? Similar to uh, the analogy of a baby growing on its mother's milk, the colostrum and the nutrients that a newborn gets from its, its mother. Uh, Paul's making, or excuse me, Peter is making an analogy uh, to uh, believers needing that, that milk of the word, needing it for our spiritual survival. Right? And some believers can go decades and remain immature because they're spiritually starving themselves. And we have to ask ourselves, what does my spiritual diet consist of? Is it the milk of the word, like the Apostle Paul says? Or does my spiritual diet consist of spiritual iceberg lettuce, where it's mostly water and fiber and not much else, right? right? Am I starving myself spiritually, or is my diet toxic? What am I taking in? Is that old expression, garbage in, garbage out. What am I receiving on a daily basis, right? Do I get so caught up in, you know, you walk through the, the food lines and there's all the tabloids of, and they say the gossip column of all these stars and who's cheating on who and what's going on, who's pregnant. You know, it, do we fill our, our diet with junk or are we trying to fill our diet with the things of God that's important? And verse three can be translated one of two ways, either, if indeed you have tasted from a negative, have you tasted? And if you have, then this is what you'll follow. Or from a positive, since you have tasted, right? And it means the same thing. But tasted is an experiential word. When you look up the Greek word, when you say, have you tasted of the Lord? It means, have you experienced the Lord, right? That's important to understand there. So is it a true conversion or is it an emotional response to an altar call? And, you know, we love to do altar calls here. We love for people to come up and publicly proclaim their love for Jesus and want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and start their walk with Jesus Christ. But certainly it's not to be an emotional thing. It's to be, there is some emotion attached to it, but it is a walk. You come up. It's a very serious thing when you say, Lord, I choose to follow you. I believe that you are my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. There's also a seriousness to that, right? So have you tasted in the word of God? Do we desire the things of, the, of God, right? And again, very genuine, serious questions we should ask ourselves. F.B. Meyer said this. He said, there's no surer indication of religious declension and ill health than the cessation for the desire of the word of God. Let me read that again. Let that sink in. There's no surer indication of religious declension and ill health than the cessation for the desire of the word of God. Right? It's important to understand. 
So verse 4, as we continue, coming to him as to a living stone, meaning Jesus, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Now he's going to quote, he's going to go into the Old Testament, Isaiah 28 here. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him, meaning the Messiah, will by no means be put to shame. And he goes on, Peter, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, quoting another scripture, uh, Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and we go into Isaiah 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. See, I love this. When, you know, I talk about the Old Testament, you know, we, all 66 books, they all intertwine. They're all like one piece in a puzzle. And when they all come together, you can see the tapestry or the mosaic of God's heavenly plan. So it's amazing how Peter and Paul and Jesus just would take the uh, Old Testament and bring them all together and make sense over the centuries. So we desire the milk of the word, and here we come to him, Christ, as to a living stone. Now, what did we cover so far? We covered that God is a living God. We don't worship idols. We don't bow down to idols. Our God is a living God, and he's also the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're not the dead. They are the living. They are alive and well with the Lord, and we know that we have a living Savior. We don't go to his tomb and, and know that his bones are in there and worship the tomb, or pray over the tomb, we know the tomb is empty. We worship a living Savior. In three days, he rose. We know that God has left us his living word, and we saw before the first chapter that he is our living hope, and today he is a living stone. So what's the common denominator? It's the modifier living. It is alive. Our faith is dynamic. It is alive. It is exciting, right? It applies to our lives thousands of years later. And I hope that my excitement for the word is infectious to you. I've been teaching the word for around 10 years, and I tell you what, I'm not bored of it. it every day is exciting to me when I, when I go into God's word. So it is alive. We are living. We have a living, dynamic, exciting faith. Better yet, Jesus Christ was no ordinary stone, but he was the chief cornerstone. Now, do you ever go into an old house and, um, you know, real old house, a few hundred years old, you go down to the basement and, and it's a dirt floor and you look at the foundation around you and there's a bunch of stones and there's some mortar, but the stones are different colors, different sizes, very beautiful old homes, right? They were, they were built like bunkers. Uh, even today, a friend of mine, I went into his home and I saw his foundation and boy, after a few hundred years, it's still solid, right? Those stones were all put together to make that foundation. Okay, let's, let's take that. Now, even, let's go even further back. In those days um, of the time that the, the Old Testament was written, what they would do is they'd find a capstone or a cornerstone, something that was really big but could kind of fit on, on sort of like in two directions, and they would make that their cornerstone. The builders would look at that stone and say, wow, that's what we're going to start with our foundation, and everything else is going to be built on that capstone. So I want you to understand this before we just say, oh, yeah, Jesus is the cornerstone. What does that mean? Well, we're going to learn what that means. Now, I'll just tell you, too, when I was in construction years ago, 
uh, in my college years, and I told my friend Scott I would use this story, but Scott was a bricklayer, and I didn't know anything about masonry, so all I could do was mix the mud, right, the, the concrete, and he would be there with his, he would be building the house, and he would build the first corner of the wall, and it would be going in two directions, and he'd have his plumb bobs and his levels and his squares, and there's strings that he uh, snapped across for the rest of the blocks to go on, and he built this perfect, beautiful cornerstone of the foundation of that work. And I'd be sitting there just kind of looking up with my eyes closed trying to get a tan because I was bored, right? And I'd be like, Scott, what's taking so long? He goes, stop bothering me. This is very important because if I mess this up, the whole rest of the foundation is going to be a mess. And then we have to knock it down and do it all over again. So what would happen was once he would get it set, he would take those blocks Boom, he would set it down, set it down, and he'd just string a line of blocks all the way across in both directions. And then he put the blocks up so fast that he would say to me, hurry up and mix more concrete because we need concrete. So just to get you an idea of how important that foundation is, that cornerstone is, Jesus is that. We are nothing without him as the cornerstone. So let me explain our function now as believers, that we're laid on this, this cornerstone, right? These living stones that we are. The living stones are built on the foundation with Jesus as the foundational cornerstone. And my question is, do you realize this is for you? This is for you. This is for you. This is for you. This is for every individual in this room. God wants you to be a part of his great plan. His desire is to use you. In some way, he made you individual. He made you unique. He loves you, right? And you may not be feeling it right now, but, you know, this is the type of value that we need to understand. See, self-esteem in the world means, you know, I'm great. I can make my own decisions. It doesn't matter how I affect other people. And that's the kind of self-esteem of the secular world. But understand, there's a good self-esteem, and it comes from the fact that God loves you, that before you were born, God knew you. Know that God knew that you were going to respond to his call of salvation. That God formed you intricately and perfectly in the womb. Pretty impressive stuff. Now, once you see that, you understand the love of God. And it all starts to come together. And that's the encouragement. Try to visualize what a structure would look like. Let's talk about this foundation again. We're all living stones. How would it look if there was a bunch of stones missing? Big stones, gaping holes in that foundation. Well, we know the dirt would come in, the bugs would come in. Possibly, it could cause a breach in the wall and cause a collapse, right? So we are important. God gives us importance in his grand uh, scheme. But we have to understand, too, a lot of our egocentric ways have to acquiesce to coming together as a team. That's important. It goes to show two things. Number one, if we don't realize we have value... Well, God tells us now that we do have value in his spiritual house. Now, see, let's just talk about the spiritual house in a minute. for a minute. In the Old Testament, God had this beautiful temple. And you can look at pictures of reenactments, and there was marble, there were cedars. I mean, it was impressive. The doors were huge when they would open up. And there was so much awe surrounding it because there was a precinct or a room in that temple that was called the Holy of Holies. And only the priest could go in there once a year and offer that blood sacrifice upon the mercy seat. God's Shekinah glory, his actual presence would be in the temple. And the children of Israel would be like, they would be an awestruck. Nobody would think of trying to go into that room because they knew the reverence and they had reverence in the power of God. Now, check this out. The temple's no longer needed. Obviously, God hasn't tasked anyone to rebuild another one. But what happens now is in the age of grace, 
since the Messiah, since Jesus, we are his temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, this should be a really uplifting message to you today. A part of God, his Holy Spirit, resides in us, his Shekinah glory. And we can choose to live our lives based on what the Spirit says or ignore the Spirit. That's our choice. But it's pretty fantastic how he set the whole thing up. Even Jesus said, referring to himself, that he was the rock, and on this rock that he would build his church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Even overseas with the the church being persecuted in all these dictatorship countries, slaughtering Christians in, in our day. The church is just growing, and these leaders scratch their heads. What are these people, crazy? They're, we're killing them, and they're still popping up like, like dandelions. What's going on here? Because you can't kill what Jesus started. You can't kill the church. Jesus said it would never happen. Jesus even gave Peter the name. His name was Simeon, probably from the, one of the 12 tribes, and he renamed him uh, Petros, or, or Peter, which also means a stone. So he was also a stone in this, but, but Jesus was the bedrock. He was the foundational layer. So you see a lot of this through the, uh, even the Gospels. So two things. Number one, if we don't realize our value, we see we have value. Now from the flip side, if we are prideful about our abilities, we need to learn what dependence on God means and interdependence amongst each other. See, the capstone is the beautiful stone. That's the ooh-ah stone. The rest of the stones are kind of neat, but they're there's a lot of similarity and commonality. We, we can't look at ourselves and think that we're better than another person. We all have a purpose. So there's a, a prideful issue that also has to be dealt with. We're not the most important brick or stone. Kind of reminds me when I was doing this of a childhood uh, song when I was younger. All in all, you're just a, another brick in the wall. <laughs> so you, All right, so you, you remember that. But if there's anything that we stress, it's teamwork. You know, even Calvary Chapel Crossfields, the pastoral team, even when we went to talk about the home groups, I had a bunch of men who uh, had uh, experience and, and, and ordination and time and understanding the things of God, and we all put our heads together and said, so how do we do this home group thing? It's a team. I don't unilaterally make decisions here. As a matter of fact, any check that I write or that's written has to go through three different people, and it has to be two signatures on every check. So just because I'm the senior pastor doesn't mean I rule by divine fiat. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't happen like that. We're a team, the worship team, right? The pastoral team, the children's ministry team. We work together. We have to because that's what the Bible says. And if we're individuals and we're self-centered, this concept is going to be a little bit difficult to understand. So the first thing, we're living stones that make up a spiritual house. Now he moves on and he speaks about we're also a holy priesthood that offers up spiritual sacrifices. Revelation 1.6, uh, Jesus tells us that to him he, who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood about Jesus and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So we've been made kings and priests, or another translation is a kingdom of priests. But no matter, basically what it means is this. When you go into the Old Testament, there was the priesthood. And you couldn't be a priest unless you were from the uh, Levitical line, right? Your father and your grandfather and great-grandfather, it was a bloodline thing, okay? Priesthood today in some faiths doesn't go by that, but that's the way God set it up. Uh, The priests also had families, right? And the most important thing about the priest was they would take the sacrifices of the people. They were mediators, All they were was a middleman from the person 
to God. They would take the sacrifices offered up to God, he would accept it, and that person's sins would be atoned for. But when Jesus came, Hebrews tells us, he was the high priest. He was the last priest. So really, it abolished the priesthood. So any religion that has a priesthood today is a redundancy because the Bible tells us today that we don't have to go through a priest or a pastor or a rabbi. We can go right to God because Jesus is our mediator. Right? You understand that? So that's important. Now, so when he talks about us being a priesthood and offering up spiritual sacrifice, so what does that mean? Is he reinstituting the effectual office of the priesthood? No, he's not. We are a priest to the unsaved world. We offer up sacrifices because if those are in rebellion to Christ, God will not accept their prayers. There won't be fellowship between God and a person if they reject his way of salvation. So we as priests, as the kingdom of priests, will pray for those who are unsaved. We'll pray for those who are blinded and don't see the truth. We pray for God to open their eyes. We also up, offer up sacrifices for our children, for our family, right? Maybe our kids are too little to really understand the concept of God, so we pray for them. We offer up spiritual sacrifices, prayer, reading the word, teaching the Bible. These things are pleasing to God, understand? So that's an important thing to understand too. And the Bible says that we as believers can boldly come before the throne of grace. That doesn't mean arrogantly. It doesn't mean haughtily. It means boldly. We can stand in God's presence and, and speak to him, right? As, you know what I'm saying? It's just that relationship issue. But in verse 8, understand this. It says, the chief cornerstone was rejected by men, and he still is. See, the world is building its own house. The Bible says, John tells us, right? Uh, do not love the things of the world. It doesn't mean don't use them for God's glory. It doesn't mean you can't have a savings account. He says do not love the things of the world because if you have the love of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. It's a one or the other situation. So the world is building its own house with its own cornerstone and its own sacrifices and their house is the house of Babylon. The, the world has always wanted to build the Tower of Babel ever since Genesis. The world has always wanted to get to heaven through their own means, through natural means, through carnal means. And God says, no way. So the world is doing one thing, and we do the other. And verse 8 also says that he, meaning Jesus, is a rock of offense to many. A rock of offense. Now that word in Greek, offense, is scandalon. Now, just think of what English word scandalon uh, comes from that. It's scandal. There's a direct transliteration from the Greek to English, and scandalon, offense, is scandal in the English. Now, and really, it is a scandal. And you can see even the political climate today that you could have gone to jail for 10 years for burglary, somebody will vote for you. You know, Marion Berry smoked crack, and they um, reelected him. Uh, God bless him. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, you could be into Wicca and witchcraft, and you'll get elected. You tell someone, I want to run for office of government. I am a born-again Christian. I believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. I am filled with the Holy Spirit, and I believe in the fundamentals of God's word. They will cut you up into pieces. They will ridicule you in the media. They will make sure that they destroy you. They will find, there, there's professionals that actually will look into your past to find anything dirty on you or your spouse so they could bring up and say, huh, Christian, huh? So it is a scandal. It really is, right? Uh, look at the political field. But remember this. 
stand up for the Lord. Because at the cross of Christ, Jesus could have said, you know what, this is crazy. I'm not doing this. This is, this is insane. To, I, I'm pure. I've never sinned. I've never had familiarity with sin. And now I'm going to bear the sins of the world. He could have said, no way, I'm not doing it. But at the cross, he stood up for us. He stood up for my sins before, now, and in the future, right? He bore shame and humiliation for me that he didn't have to. But that was the only way that I could have eternal life. So I would say this, when there's a temptation to deny him, remember, Jesus took our shame and humiliation. He took those sins on the cross. Verse 8 continues. It says, but they were disobedient to the word which they were appointed. Another powerful scripture. Now, in context, this is the religious leaders. The religious leaders uh, rejected the chief cornerstone. The builders rejected it, right? They were supposed to be the builders. They were supposed to be working to build the spiritual house, God's house. But they were so into themselves and their own fame and money that when Jesus came, they couldn't take the competition. So they, they, had to, they, they wanted to crucify him. So they rejected that cornerstone. However, it's also the rest of the world, the rebellious world, a resistant to God's plan. Let me read a scripture to you in Matthew. Matthew 21, starting with verse 42. Jesus says to them, the religious leaders, did you never read in the scriptures, quote, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Of course, they were, went on to do a cowardly thing and indict him in the middle of the night and break all their rules so that he could be crucified. But understand, two things here. We can either fall on him, on Christ, the cornerstone, and be broken. And we all need to be broken. I still need to be broken. You know, we all have an element of pride in ourselves. So we fall on the cornerstone, just like if you were to fall into a pit and it was hard at the bottom, you'd break some bones. But what, is, what happens when your bones mend? You know, the calcium and the minerals get really into those fissures and the bone becomes stronger than it was before. There's a spiritual analogy to that. Or you can rebel against the Lord and you could get to the point where you're rebelling and rebelling and rebelling and the stone falls on you and it's a heavy stone. He will grind you to powder. There's no hope for you at that point. So I would say to you today, anybody here, I don't care what your age is, you will either come to the Lord willingly out of adoration, oh Jesus, I love you, you know, be, be the light of my life. Or you can rebel and rebel and rebel, and then when you die, you'll see him, and by obligation, you will still bow the knee, and you still will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's your choice. We come to him out of adoration or obligation, but we're going to come to him. So we can either be broken and be repaired, or we can be ground to powder. Choice is ours. That's the beauty of God's word. He gives us the choice to, to, to take whatever path we want to take, the right path or the wrong path. That's our choice. Can't blame anybody in the end. Verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. In verse 8, they stumbled. 
in, but you. In verse 9, there's a contrast. And you see this. This is why I love, again, it was in uh, 1 Samuel and just back and forth between Eli's wicked sons who were in the priesthood and little Samuel who was growing up in the priesthood. You kept seeing, but Samuel served the Lord with his heart. But Eli's sons were wicked. But Samuel grew up and got to understand and know the Lord. But uh, Eli's sons became more wicked and God had to take them out. Right? You see that contrast. So the world may do things. Uh, the world may focus on money and that's their whole focus and that's their plan. But you, believer, but you focus on the ministry that God has for you and the rewards are eternal. They can't be taken from you. Right? They in the world can gratify their flesh, but you, believer, you walk in the Spirit. Be obedient, children. God loves you. And that relationship will be so much more pleasurable than gratifying your flesh. They will make friends with the world and be popular, but you may move on to higher ministry and take the path of ministry, which sometimes can be a lonely road, but the rewards are eternal. And I tell you, there is no greater joy than to serve others and to bless others being involved in God's business and to have that type of purpose in life. Don't stumble over him because this world is a sinking ship. And just like the Titanic, many of the passengers don't realize that it's a sinking ship. It's taking in water, it's run into an iceberg, it's starting to fill up and people are still partying and drinking and, and doing all kinds of stuff, but the ship is sinking. So it's only that God's world is something that we should be a part of. Verse 9, believers are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and his own special people. There's an analogy here. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel, right? He called them to be a great nation out of the seed of Abraham. So he's called believers, believers in Christ, to be a holy nation and a chosen generation for the family of God out of the seed being seeded by Christ, uh, being seeded, the Holy Spirit being seeded uh, by Christ. Called out of darkness into marvelous light. It's only through faith in Christ are we really in the light and we really understand the truth of all things. Verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners or pilgrims, or so, excuse me, sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the, sto- the soul. I'm only going to cover this in one more scripture, and that's where I'm going to leave it for today. So as we're winding down, verse 11. This is the perspective of knowing the big plans that God has for us as living stones. So we know that his plans are good and we understand that we're only passing through in this earth for a short time, right? Um, I just found out about somebody else who passed away who was 43. You know, it's death doesn't wait until you're into your ripe 90s or 100s. You know, you don't know if you have another day of life. So it's, the time is not to think about it when, you know, it's, it's the end, obviously. It's the time to think about it is now. But we need to have the proper mindset, right, to determine uh, our behavior and what we'll do in the meantime, understanding, knowing that we are just sojourners and pilgrims here. So abstain from fre- fleshly lust that war against the soul. And that's the truth. If you, especially if you're called to ministry, if, you're call, if God is calling you to hire you know, ministry or to, um, you know, to teach the Bible or any of that kind of stuff, you know, he considers that an honor. But with that, you will also uh, be tempted. Right? There'll be temptations out there uh, by the enemy because they don't want you to do that kind of stuff. And it's our choice whether we're going to walk in the Spirit and, and not let those temptations turn into sin or we're going to give in to those temptations. And you've seen... All you have to do is look in the news, how many 
priests or pastors or rabbis, you know, either embezzlement or, you know, some of these uh, sexual scandals. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. The temptations are great. We need to pray for our spiritual leaders. You know, it's very important. But sometimes the enemy is not outside. <laughs> sometimes the enemy is within. Right? Sometimes the enemy is us. D.L. Moody said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any man I know. <laughs> I love that. I would say that the same about myself. I can't get rid of myself. If you get on my nerves, I can tell you, you know, get away from me right now. I don't want to talk to you. But I can't get rid of myself. I'm always here. I wake up, I'm here. I go to bed, I'm here. So I would definitely tend to agree with D.L. Moody. And, uh, you know, it's, it's only... See, here's the thing. You, the, listen, the Bible's clear. I'm not going to tell you, oh, sin is... is you're going to hate it. Sin really appeals to your flesh. It's really a gratification of your deep, basis desires. But I think what... Sometimes we can see the line. Sometimes we might be on the line. But I find for myself, I don't cross the line because... And that doesn't mean I don't sin. Please understand that. But I'm not going to jump into this life now of, of sin because, you know, the rewards of serving God are so great. And I do have to war against my flesh. It is a battle. Some of the greatest wars that I have to deal with are inside. And the wise man understands that sometimes the enemy is within. I've seen so many start out with a bang, you know, come in and, oh, I, I want to receive Jesus and I want to serve the Lord and they're here and, and then it's just so disheartening as a pastor. A few months down the line, they're gone. Some temptation, some issue has completely distracted them and they've walked away. And I got to tell you, that's the majority. And Jesus even said the wide path, the one that leads to destruction, destruction most people follow that path. The narrow path that leads to eternal life, very few follow that path and I've definitely experienced it and it, it, it is painful to watch you know and you, you can only talk to them you can kind of shake them sometimes but eventually they're going to make their own decisions you can't walk for them so again you've all seen this some of you it's been very uh, heartbreaking to see I look at the parable of the sower you know Jesus speaks about the sower uh, the word of God and he spoke about the different soils and that was a condition of our hearts very little of the seed actually got to fertile ground God's word was able to flourish and establish and, and grow a crop and, and be bountiful. Most of the seed was either plucked up by the birds or scorched by the sun or whatever the case may be. You're familiar with the parable. My question is, what about you? What kind of soil is your heart right now, spiritually? Are you here because somebody asked you to come? Are you here because your family's Christian? Are you here for all the wrong reasons? Because this is a really cool building and eventually we're going to have a bunch of people playing really neat instruments behind me. You know, what is it? Is it because, you know, uh, you see a lot of cars in the parking lot? Why are you here? What are you seeking today? Right? And, and I say this because what we want to provide is the free gift of salvation. Jesus said to his disciples, you've been freely received. You freely give to others. And that's it. You know, there's basically three things that the Bible speaks about, and that's it. You can take the whole Old and New Testament and turn it into three things, three objectives. One is to have a relationship with God as sinners, to be reconciled back to our Father in heaven, right? Two is to be built up in God's Word, to walk in the Spirit, to grow and mature spiritually. And three, when you have been matured and you have grown, that you turn around and affect others and bring them into the family of God so they can have that relationship with God. That is it. Okay, let's close our Bibles and go home. It's a very simple message. Three things. 
three objectives in the scripture. Where was I? Okay. <laughs> so my point is, is your heart fertile ground? What have you come here seeking? You know? And, and my prayer is that everyone here today is receiving the word, not me, the word, receiving the word, it's implanted into your heart and it starts to grow on fertile ground. Don't let the bird snatch away the seed. Don't let the sun come and scorch it. Don't let it dry out. Follow the Lord. He loves you. Forget about all the distractions like the horses in the city. Put on blinders and just keep following the path. You know what I'm saying? Amen? I'm one of those weird pastors that's not looking for big numbers. I, really, I'm a weird guy. I'm not looking to fill up the parking lot. I'm not looking to go to two services. If that happens, great. I want to make sure you're here for the right reasons. You understand? Be here for the right reasons. Verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So be a good example, especially to the unsaved. Remember, we spoke of hypocrisy. Right? What is our testimony? What is our example to the unsaved world? Peter says that even if they slander you and they talk about you and they make fun of you, their arguments will be baseless. They'll be hollow. Now, did you ever do the right thing as a believer? Follow the scripture. And even from other believers, they turn around and they say, oh, you're not doing the right thing. You made the wrong decisions. They kind of give you grief. But I'm following what the Bible says. And some get frustrated because the more they try to live a godly life, the more grief they get. Peter tells us this basic tenet, to persevere in doing the right thing in a wrong world. That's hard. The world's a big place. A lot of people in the world. The world controls a lot of stuff, right? Doing the right thing in a wrong world. That's what he's speaking about because the truth will come out in the end and in the day of the visitation, all the lies will be exposed. And it will be revealed that if you're following God's word, he will praise you for that. It doesn't matter what others think about you. Even the rebellious, according to this, will be forced to admit that your life was honorable among them. But there's one catch. Your life has to be honorable among them. See, I love the scripture. It just, it's just so simple. And I think I'm a simple guy. Um, and, and I just love it because just, your life has to be honorable. That's the catch. Because Peter goes on to say in chapter 4, don't suffer persecution or be slandered for being a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody into other people's matters. You know, he says that you, you got what you deserved, right? But blessed are the righteous, you know, blessed are the ones that are persecuted for righteousness sake. I want to read something that actually a historical account that uh, Warren Wearsby uh, speaks about. It, it actually is a true story, and I, I find it humorous in the way that the, the dialogue goes back and forth. But he says, in the summer of 1805, a long time ago, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in council at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of the Christian message by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. After the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. Among other things, the chief said, quote, brother, you say that there is but one way to worship and serve the great spirit. If there is but one religion, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why not all agree as you can all read the book? You know, this is great. Christians are trying to reach these guys and they, they're just, that's a great question. It's that childlike response. Beautiful. Quote again, brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. 
we will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. <laughs> you know, it's great when we get convicted by, you know, when we think we're just so spiritual and we're so smart about the things of God and you, you find someone who you're trying to reach and they just ask you these simple questions and, and genuine too. I love it. I love, I'm, again, I'm a weird guy. I love being convicted. I love being shown that I'm doing something wrong so I can change and get better. So he says this, he continues, he says, if we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, <laughs> we will then consider again of what you have said. Good job, Red Jacket. What is what it all comes down to, right? What is our purpose in life? What's your purpose? What are you going to do when you leave here? What's your purpose for the next few years? Great plans, right? Are we part of that spiritual house that God wants us to be a part of? Or are we that stone that just refuses to, you know, leaves a blank in, in the foundation and just kind of keeps sitting out there on the side, right? Are we part of the mosaic, the tapestry? Are we disobedient to the word for which we were appointed? Or do we have something else in mind? There's a point in every person's life where they have to make that decision. To the believer, it's to get on board in what God is doing. And to the unbeliever, God loves you and wants you to be a part of his family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as we uh, go through your word, it's powerful, Lord, and uh, love to see some of the real-life examples where your people are challenged to have a good reputation among the unsaved. And uh, Father in heaven, I just pray, you know.